I really have to be short, so I selected just one topic which is not central to the book. We are uh, publicizing today because many people complain about so-called democratic deficit in Europe and so on. I want to problematize it. So let me quickly go through it. Sometimes faces become symbols, not of the strong individuality of their bearers, but of the anonymous forces behind them. Remember, a couple of months ago was not the stupidly smiling face of Yeroen Dieselblum, president of the Eurogroup, the symbol of EU's brutal pressure on Greece. Recently, the international trade deal, TIPP, TIP, acquired a new symbol, the cold face of EU Trade Commissioner Cecilia Malmström, who, when asked by a journalist how she could continue her promotion of TIP in the face of massive public opposition, responded without shame, I do not take my mandate from the European people. Now a third anonymous face has emerged, Franz Timmermans, the first vice president of the EU Commission, who, on December 23, 2015, scolded the Polish government for adopting a new law which poses a threat to democratic constitutional order since it subordinates institutional court to the authority of government. Furthermore, Timmermans condemned the new media law which was rushed through Polish parliament a couple of weeks later. The law will enable the parliament to immediately sack all executives of the country's public television and radio companies. Now, the ruling party justifies this law as necessary to stifle unfair criticism of its actions, while the opposition decries it as a severe limitation of the freedom of the press. In an immediate, sharp reply, the Polish government warned Brussels, quote, to exercise more restraint in instructing and cautioning the parliament and the government of a sovereign and democratic state in the future. Now, end of quote. From the standard liberal view, it is of course inappropriate to put these three names into the same series. Diesel, Blum and Malmström personify the pressure of the Brussels bureaucrats without democratic legitimization on states and their democratically elected governments while Timmermans intervened to protect basic democratic institutions, independence of courts, free press, from a government that overstepped its legitimate powers. However, although it may appear obscene to compare the brutal neoliberal pressure on Greece with the justified criticism of Poland, did the Polish government's reaction not hit the mark in a way? Timmermans, a European administrator without any clear democratic legitimization exerted pressure on a clearly democratically elected popular government of a sovereign state. Now comes the problematic part. Do we not encounter a similar dilemma in today's Germany? I was recently answering questions for the readers of Die Deutsche Zeitung about the refugee crisis and the question which attracted by far most attention concerned precisely democracy, but with a right-wing 
populist twist, namely Reader Asked Me. When Angela Merkel made her famous public appeal, kommt wir schaffen es, come, we will make it, inviting hundreds of thousands of refugees into Germany, where was her democratic legitimization? What gave her the right to bring such a radical change into German life without democratic consultation? Because every opinion poll will show you that, at least in the last couple of months, large majority of Germans are against allowing refugees to enter Germany. To avoid a misunderstanding, my point here, of course, is not to support anti-immigrant populists, but to clearly point out the limits of simple, direct democratic legitimization. The same goes for those who advocate radical opening of the borders. Are they aware that, since our democracies are nation-state democracies, their demand equals suspension of democracy? A gigantic change should be allowed to affect a country without democratic consultation of its population. And does the same not hold for the calls for transparency of EU decisions? Since in many countries the majority of the public was against the Greek debt reduction. Here I, in a very friendly way, slightly disagree with my really good friend Varoufakis, who believes in this transparency and so on. But uh, wait a minute. Rendering EU negotiations public would make representatives of many European countries advocate even tougher measures against Greece. That's the paradox. I learned that the Slovene finance minister, who was definitely a bad guy, he told a friend of mine that if the negotiations there were to be public, not to lose votes in Slovenia, he would have to be much tougher against uh, Greece. So we encounter here the old problem. What happens to democracy when the majority is inclined to vote for racist and sexist laws? I'm not afraid to draw the conclusion that emancipatory politics should not be bound a priori by formal democratic procedures. People quite often do not know what they want, or do not want what they know, or simply want the wrong thing. There is no simple shortcut here. And we can well imagine a democratized Europe with much more engaged citizens than today, but it's a Europe, you know, you keep here uh, Pegida in Germany and so on and so on. Leftist critics of Europe thus find themselves in a strange predicament. While they deplore the democratic deficit of the EU and propose plans to make more transparent the decision-making in Brussels, they support the non-democratic Brussels administrators when they exert pressure on democratically legitimized new, we may even call them proto-fascist tendencies. The context of these impasses is the big bad wolf of the European liberal left, the threat of new fascism embodied in anti-immigrant rightist populism. This scarecrow is perceived as the principal enemy against which we should all unite, from whatever remains of the radical left to the mainstream liberal Democrats. 
Europe is portrayed as a continent regressing towards a new fascism which feeds on the paranoiac hatred and fear of the external ethnic religious enemy, mostly Muslims. Now, while this new fascism is directly predominant in some post-communist East European countries, Hungary, Poland, and so on, it's almost winning also in my own country, it is also getting stronger and stronger, as we all know, in many other countries. But my first doubt, is this fascism really fascism? The term fascism is all too often used as an excuse to avoid detailed analysis of what effectively goes on. For me, the symptomatic point of this topic is a figure to which I'm, of course, opposed, but he's kind of a symptom of what was wrong. Maybe you remember him, the Dutch rightist populist politician Pim Fortuyn, who was killed in early May 2002, two weeks before elections on which he was expected to gain at least 20% of the votes. He was a paradoxical symptomal figure, a rightist populist whose personal features and even most of his opinions were almost perfectly politically correct. He was gay. He had good personal relations with many immigrants. He had an innate sense of irony and so on. In short, he was a good tolerant liberal with regard to everything except his basic political stance. He opposed fundamentalist immigrants because of their hatred precisely towards homosexuality, women's rights, and so on. So it's a beautiful paradox. What Pim Fortuyn embodied was the intersection between rightist populism and left liberal political correctness. He was a unique case of politically correct, pro-women rights, gay rights, populist racist. Furthermore, many leftist liberals, like Jürgen Habermas, who bemoan the ongoing decline of European Union, seem to idealize its past. The democratic EU, the loss of which they bemoan, I claim never really existed. Recent EU policy is just a desperate attempt to make Europe fit for new global capitalism. The usual left liberal critique of the EU is basically okay just with a democratic deficit, betrays the same naivety as the critics of ex-communist countries. I remember many of them said, communism is okay, communist state just neglected democracy a little bit. I mean, it's ridiculous. The whole point is that that neglect of democracy was necessary, was part of the system. And I think it's, as I, I'm approaching the end, I see your... <laughs> Superego voice, yes, yes, very fast. So, uh, obviously, the only way to counteract the democratic deficit of global capitalism would have been through some kind of transnational entity. It was already Emmanuel, not this one, but Kant, Emmanuel Kant, who more than 200 years ago saw the need for a transnational state, a transnational legal order grounded in the rise of global society. A quote from Kant. Since the narrower or wider community of the people of the earth has developed so that a violation of rights in one place is felt throughout the world, the idea of a law of world citizenship is no high-flown or exaggerated notion. End of quote. But this brings us to what is, I think, let's call it in Maoist way, the principal contradiction of the new world order. 
the structural impossibility of finding a global political order which would correspond to global capitalist economy. I think it's not possible even conceptually to imagine that in the same way that we have global capitalism, global market, that we will get some, I don't know, globally 5 billion voters elected government. If you look at it closely, you can see that today's global capitalism can only function if it's sustained by nation-state frames, and this is even more and more a tendency. For me, a politician of the future today is, for example, Modi, the Prime Minister of India, total global capitalist, but at the same time, ethnically, more or less, he tries to tone down his racism today, ethnically Hindu nationalist. So, in politics, the repress of the global economy returns with avengers, archaic fixations, particular substantial ethnic, religious identities, and so on, and so on. That's my point to those who claim that global capitalism should be counteracted by global democracy. It can't be done. Then you have to step over capitalism. Now, what to do? Just literally a concluding thought. The mantra of the leftist is, yes, moderate left, we should play the parliamentarian game, but if we win, we should fight against the danger of becoming alienated, standard, bureaucratic government. We should maintain the living link with social base, civil society, and so on and so on. But I am totally opposed to this solution. Why? Because I think that, you know, for example, what happened in Greece. Now, the standard leftist reaction is the reason Syriza betrayed its program is because it lost contacts with its base. All the social movements, feminists, ecologists, human rights, whatever. It just became a party like another. I agree, but I absolutely don't believe that the solution is more of a link with social movements and so on. I think this is just an ersatz. The true problem is how to change, if it's possible, if not, we are lost, the functioning of the state apparatus itself. Because, and now I'm not bluffing, what I'm telling you now was told to me in private, and I'm telling you now in private, <laughs> uh, by my good friend uh, Garcia Alvaro Linera, the vice president of Bolivia, which is usually quoted as the land where the government, the uh, Morales government, sustains itself through keeping the links alive with social movements and so on. But as Linera told me, there is also an extremely painful and strong bad result of this. The moment you state hold powers, these so much celebrated social-based movements begin to play clientelist game. He told me it's very nice. We have uh, that tribe has representatives, that group of miners have representatives. They immediately start to play the clientelist game. So my point is this one. The big task of the left and of all of us in view of a society in which we live Society which faces problems which I think cannot be solved in this local democracy way. And incidentally, I'm personally against local democracy. Can you imagine living in this 
social movements, local democracy, every afternoon, because you are active. You have to go to some stupid meetings, kindergarten, where do we get water, and so on. No, I want, in a good sense, alienated, in the sense of invisible, and so on. Local autocracies. Sorry? Local autocracies. No, even more, state autocracy, they just do efficiently the job. And I want to have my fucking peace to, to read, to write my books, and so on, and so on. You know what's the problem? The problem is this one. Now I'm really, uh, now I'm really at the end. <laughs> the title of this my short intervention could have been, did you see the movie with Natalie Portman and so on, V for Vendetta? The title could have been V for Vendetta Part 2. Namely, you know what happens, a triumph at the end of the film? It takes place even here in... UK, I think, no? The crowd breaks the barrier, takes over the parliament, everyone is ecstatic, the end. I'm ready to sell my mother into slavery to see part two. What happens then? How do they organize government there? I'm sick and tired of this emphatic moment, you know. My God, Tahrir Square, Syntagma Square in Greece, uh, hundreds of thousands of people, we are all one with them, we cry and so on and so on. I don't care about that. I care about, as they say in the United States, anti-post-alcoholic, the morning after. Okay, people have to feel that the big thing is not to do the ecstatic revolution. The big, the change must be felt at the everyday level or of daily life when things return to normal. But in, um, in Sorry, yes, I finished. So, <laughs> please, yeah. In the democracies that we have, the yeah. so-called democracies that we have, there have been, in some ways, a certain kind of morning after, though, hasn't there? There's been the morning after Jeremy Corbyn was elected leader of the Labour Party. Yeah. The morning after Syria was elected to Greece, and then the morning after they voted no, the morning after Podemos did well, there has been this capacity of sometimes a new left, and sometimes actually a quite old left, if you look at Jeremy yeah. Corbyn or uh, Bernie yeah. Sanders, to um, actually clear electoral space that was somehow not available before. I agree with this, yes, please go on, sorry. And then there was the morning after. How did they... What's your assessment of how, in this relatively recent period, in Iowa, 43% of Democrats in Iowa defined themselves as socialist? Just a couple of years before, socialist was an epithet in America. So how does one explain this capacity to clear electoral space? And what is your assessment of how they've done the morning after? Okay, let's go step by step. First, what I meant the morning after was in a slightly stronger sense. Yes, there was also a morning after when Syriza, against all expectations, turned into a strong political party, won elections, and so on and so on. But where my pessimism begins, and I'm not saying, my God, I'm a total supporter of uh, Bernie Sanders. I even made some statements that they are using, and so on. But I'm sure my... he was delighted. Sorry? I'm sure he was delighted to get... Statements from you the know, uh, uh, quite seriously, you know why I appreciate him? Because I'm sick and tired of this 
upper middle class white political correctness, where, you know, they don't really have any contact with black people, with poor people. Often their political correctness even has a clear class edge. You know, when an American liberal talks about how in some circles women have no rights, they are mistreated, quite often they mean Latino American and, and black families and so on. So uh, what I'm saying is that the reason I'm for Bernie Sanders is a much more precise one. He was, that's I think the ultimate ground of his success. Look what he's doing in Vermont. And since I love kitschy nature, you know, all those yellow leaves in Vermont in the <laughs> fall, I'm often there, I know it. He was very careful to avoid this upper middle class elitist leftist politics. The key of his success is he doesn't dismiss ordinary farmers, all those who usually are part of the even populist racist moral majority. He kept a dialogue with them. So he is a living proof that the left should abandon this arrogance, oh, ordinary lower middle class workers, they are just half proto-fascists and so on and so on. We can maintain contact with them. Second thing, that's my example which I used even for that uh, DM meeting with Varoufakis. Today, to directly aim at the big revolution is a utopia. It's a very comfortable position. In Greece, you have this old KKA or whatever, Communist Party, which gets 7-8% of votes. I almost admire them. It's the only one that I know that of considerable strength. Communist Party, where for them the point of reference is simply Stalin. They reprint Stalin's work, they are totally orthodox. For them the traitor is not Gorbachev, but Khrushchev who dared. But they have this radical politics. We have to wait for true working class revolution. Yes, and they wait and they are a threat to no one. Out of strange politics, they even voted for new democracy against PASOK and so on. So the thing we have to learn is politics of small steps, but I will be now very precise. Not small steps in this compromising sense, you know, or just, no. Here is the metaphor, and then I will stop, if you're stupid enough to believe me. I will stop <laughs> quickly. Uh, you know this wonderful scene from old science fiction films, I remember it from my youth, where you enter a certain room, there are many of these early naive machines with many buttons, and then you press the wrong button, and what happens is that the whole reality disintegrates, you know walls start to break down or whatever, like you press the wrong button. This means what? Don't begin with great, large, mega demands. Pick out specific small demands which may appear modest and totally acceptable, but they are nonetheless very traumatic for the existing system. This is how our democracies work. We are given many choices on condition that certain choices are never used. For example, that's why in spite of all the horrors and mistakes he did, I still have a little bit of a soft heart for Obama. Listen, with universal health care, he obviously touched a very traumatic point in the United States. My God, he was dragged, denounced at the, my favorite great actor, Chuck Norris, you know what he said? He said, 
Obama is not just a socialist now we see. He's even maybe something more horrible. He meant <laughs> communist and so on. You see, this is what we need. A demand which, on the face of it, you cannot reject it. Like, Canada has universal health care. But you insist on it and you trigger a further process. And so it seems that increasingly the people making those small demands are finding a bigger and bigger audience yeah, for them. Yeah, and yeah. I, wh why do you think that is? Because it is a miracle, this Sanders. Uh, uh, it's incredibly important, I'm aware, to call yourself a socialist. But still, I think that, unfortunately, and I understand ordinary people, you know, the experience, wherever they had it with radical socialist measures, or communist even, the results were so uh, sad, such a failure. For example, I'm now in a constant depression, but I saw it coming, unfortunately. I was writing about it, so I'm not ju just now turning the code. For example, the catastrophe of Venezuela. Of course, United States did wage an economic war against it, but it's not only that and so on and so on. I think that that's our tragic situation. We don't yet have a big answer, which is how to effectively reorganize economy in an efficient way. Now, the third way, Tony Blair argument would have been, okay, we don't know it, so drop it, so let's just be modest, third way social democrat, maybe a little bit more of healthcare here and so on. No. The sad thing is that even if we do not know how to do it, we will have to find a way or we are facing a catastrophe. I simply, modestly believe that the big issues that we are confronting today, from ecology to economic problems, banks, intellectual property, to new forms of racism, even up to a thing like biogenetics, market cannot solve these problems. We will need to discover, I don't know how, not only stronger state, but large trans-state activity, actions. So here is another of my critical points against all those poets of local democracy. No, we need to rediscover mega-large actions. Just let me tell you a nice story that was told to me, very short one, don't be afraid, <laughs> by, by, my, uh, by my good friend, French theorist of catastrophes, Jean-Pierre Dupuy. He's part of some European Commission for Natural Catastrophes, so he was in Fukushima days after. And he told me that for one day, it didn't break into the public, but he knows it, the Japanese government was in total panic because it looked as if the pollution will be so strong that they will have to evacuate the entire Tokyo area. 30 million people. How to do this? Where? The natural solution would have been to go to Putin and ask him to give part of <laughs> Eastern Siberia. You know what I mean? That's our tragedy. It's clear for different reasons. In China there are migration. It's not just refugees in Europe. Almost half of Zimbabwe is now in South Africa, and so on and so on. This is one thing that is happening today, which needs trans-state regulation. The other thing is that although I'm anti-imperialist and so on, but with all my fascination with the Chinese model and so on, China is de facto acting as an agent of new uh, economic neocolonialism. 
I mean, this is the secret story, what China is doing in all those African countries, Zambia and so on. They are acting even more brutally than any decent old Anglo-Saxon imperialist. Do you know that a couple of times it happened in Zambia that workers in a Chinese-owned some mines or factories rebelled and linked the Chinese managers and so on and so on. So I think we are in an extremely dangerous situation. My friend Alain you even draw a parallel between today's situation and the situation before World War I. It is as if, although we deny that there can be a new world war, but if we are getting ready for it all the time. You know, it's exactly the same before World War I, where nobody, you know, that's this nice mechanism that can be described by psychoanalysis, so-called fetishist disavowal. Je sais bien mais quand même. I know very well, but. No? Like, I know we are approaching a war, but, wait a minute, it cannot really happen, and so on. Some people draw, also draw parallels between now and World War II, or pre-World War II. So, fascism is rising, there's been an economic collapse, conflict between uh, major, major powers, or potential economic conflict, America and China. Do you think we're more like pre-World War I? Or? I think this is one part of the usual leftist laziness, when you see something bad and you are too lazy to really analyze it, it's so comfortable to say fascism, neo-fascism and so on. It's something much more complex. For me, the most depressing news, and it's in the book, my new book, that I read recently is an interview, I don't know where, with a guy who tried to defend Boko Haram. And he said something so sad. He said, listen, for us in northern Nigeria and so on, the most visible face of Western way of life, imperialism and so on, is the gradual disintegration of old traditional family life. So, Boko Haram, you know what it means, no education for women and so on and so on, it's our way to fight cultural imperialism and so on. What can you answer him? Of course, I'm totally opposed to it. But there is a grain of truth. Nancy Fraser, American psychoanalyst, uh, critical, whom, with whom I generally absolutely don't agree, published now a wonderful book explaining and describing in detail how American mainstream liberal feminism was totally co-opted by liberal politics. You know how many feminists supported invasion of Iraq? claiming that it will nonetheless bring freedom, more freedom to women, and so on, and so on, which incidentally is complete madness, on the opposite. Whatever you say about Saddam, he was a secular dictator who supported education of women, and so on, and so on. But what I want to say is that, on the one hand, we have this Western concern for human rights, and so on, I totally share it. And I'm not saying that out of some sympathy with the third world, we can say, oh, let them do their clitorodectomy, uh, women and so on. But nonetheless, we cannot simply export our standards on them. Let me finish then you know, with a crazy story that happened in my own country, in Bosnia. In mid-90s, when the war was in its finishing stages, some American feminist group wanted to show solidarity with Bosnians, wanted to contact an organization of Bosnian raped women, and they wrote a letter to them. 
That letter, I think, should be printed everywhere as an example of obscenity. They simply questioned them how they fit their own problem. Like, the first question was, to these poor Bosnian raped, traumatized girls, do you think that woman has an eternal, non-historical essence, or do you admit that woman's identity is performatively constructed, and so on? <laughs> you know, like, there is something so terrifying in... On the other hand, I totally reject this opposite idea of, you know, let's forget about women's rights and so on. We have now another big struggle. Who says that? Who says Sorry? let's the, forget about women's ah, rights? Which, which now I will say? answer you which, precisely. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Nobody wait, says wait, 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 it explicitly, just, 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 but they are all the facts. Just Sorry. a second, just yeah. a second. You talk about Western values and you, human rights. And, and, ah, and now you, comes, and now you are drawing out your knife, no? <laughs> yeah, okay, okay. And uh, there's a lot of it in there. And when you say that, part of me thinks Western values... Rendition, Guantanamo Bay, the torture report, the carpet bombing of large areas of Iraq and Afghanistan, yeah. what happened in Libya. The, the rest of the world may look at what the West purports to be their values yeah. as human rights and say, well, either you don't believe that or you don't understand us as being human and therefore deserving of those rights. And so are these really... Western values, human rights, is that really a Western value? And if it is, why can't the West seem to actually honor that value? Okay, I will put it in this way. The great thing about Western values is that, at least you have to admit this, from the very beginning, the Western values, at least the democratic, emancipatory ones. Let, okay, let me first clarify misunderstanding. As I say in this book, first, the main culprit of this flow of refugees is the West. We are getting our own, this perfect Lacanian definition of communication, where the speaker gets from the addressee his own message in its inverted true form back. That's what is happening here. I totally agree with you here. It's economic neocolonialism. Look what the West is doing in, for me, always the ultimate nightmare, Republic of Congo. It's portrayed as the heart of darkness. This heart of darkness is totally integrated into Western economy. All those warlords made deals and so on. And other horrors, like the most tragic thing, you should follow this, is how in many, Afri many African countries, even the starving ones, you must know this, how not so much Western Europe on America, but for example, South Korea, Arab countries, Japan, are buying the best fertile land massively to grow export industrial plants and so on. So this is economic neocolonialism, and then there is these direct war interventions, which are a nightmare. I mean, let's be clear. I'm not saying we are to blame for everything, but without American occupation of Iraq there would have been no ISIS. And I am more and more mystified by ISIS. I doubt if, although it's portrayed as the big enemy, but do people, by people I mean big powers and so on, do they really want to destroy it? I'm more and more convinced not. Why not? Why not? Because it plays a certain precise role. With Russia and Assad, it's clear. What's the game? It's in the interest both of ISIS and Russia to get rid of all those intermediate, whatever remained in Syria of democratic opposition and so on, so that you have a pure choice, ISIS or Assad. 
Assad knows if it comes to this, we will have to support him. On the other hand, ISIS, very important, much more violent than towards us Europeans, is ISIS, namely towards Shias. And the big scarecrow for Israel, for Saudi Arabia, is Iran. So I think they are consciously keeping ISIS alive to keep off the so-called Shia-Iranian threat. Are we aware, you can correct me if you know better, but my impression is that what's happening now is an extremely important strategic rearrangement in the Middle East. A new axis is emerging. Turkey, Israel, Saudi Arabia, and it looks also Egypt. Now we discovered that for already almost 10 years, Saudi Arabia and Israeli militants and secret services are coordinating their activities all the time, how to screw Iran, and so on and so on. I mean, uh, in all this mess, I think that ISIS provides, or the fight against that kind of terror, provides a perfect background. I think they are just a screen on behalf of which other superpowers or lower powers are fighting each other. Because if everyone would really want to finish with ISIS, let's be serious. With one division, it's over in one week. Obviously, they don't want to do it. It's clear that Saudi Arabia is playing a game there. It's clear that Turkey is playing the game there, and so on and so on. So how do we understand Western values in the context of the West okay. having created that I will situation? tell you, because I know I'm not a total idiot. Maybe an idiot, but not total. I know where I provoke people, how should I put it, no? Uh, listen, take human rights. I totally agree. At the beginning, they were, you had all this wonderful, as we say, when you have a big principle, look at the small print footnotes, you know. Human rights for everyone, but you find already in Enlightenment classics. Human rights are for all human, rational beings, but then they just add tautologically, insofar as they are really free human beings. And then you go on. Sorry, I don't mean you personally, it's a bad <laughs> joke, but you blacks, you are not rational enough, you are too, you are too, too mythic, superstitious, women are confused, we know from Descartes, women can be quickly impressed by sensual, you cannot trust them, children no, criminal no, and so on and so on. So at the end, almost everyone is exclude that, no? But nonetheless, I don't agree with those crazy pseudo-radical Marxists who claim so human rights are just a mask for imperialism. No, look how they functioned. Immediately, Mary Wollstonecraft, women said, why not us also? Then, for me, the event which is more important than French Revolution, Haiti Revolution, this is for me an absolute miracle. For the first time, you had a slave rebellion, which was not this, back to our African roots or whatever. It was a miracle. It was a rebellion which said, no, we also want a modern state like the French and so on and so on. Then, basically, communism. It's also the extension. So, you see, some notion can be ideological. But you can also then use it in a critical way and turn it against its own original meaning. For example, if some of you are here for Latin America, do you know that wonderful story about Black Madonna of Guadalupe or what? Which in 1588 or whenever, a miracle happened, a black-faced Madonna appeared to some indigenous people there. 
And it's absolutely clear what happened at that point. Till that moment, Catholicism was simply a tool of colonizers. This was the first attempt of the oppressed people to reappropriate it. They also got their voice there. So uh, this is all I'm saying, that so-called European values are, of course, mostly full of bullshit. But I claim that they had inscribed into them this ability to self-overcoming. Like, what we should do is not that whole world should become European, but that oppressed people should act like in Haiti revolution they did. Like, that's why I, for example, sincerely, with all the compromises he had to make, sincerely admire Mandela. ANC was never tempted by this bullshit, you know. We want to return to some original African wisdom roots or whatever. No, he was for universalism. And you may be no better than me who was for African roots. Butelezi, the king, who was on the payroll, of course, of apartheid and so on, you know. So for me, when I refer to European values, there are two things I'm talking about. Very brief, I will try to be. The first thing is that I totally accept this logic, direct application of so-called European values to third world countries is a form of cultural colonialism. But I also think, as it's especially the case with what China is doing today, that there is a certain way to be wrongly multiculturalist, which de facto means you justify injustices in your own country. Oh, it's part of our tradition and so on and so on. You shouldn't judge us in that way. In other words, the legacy of Europe that I like is universalism. But it's an anti-universalism. It doesn't mean you apply universalism. It means everyone can take that place. That's why, as you probably know, everybody knows it. That's why my hero is Malcolm X. He was more European than we Europeans. Why? You know what was the miracle of Malcolm X? If, uh, to speak in the terms that you will understand Denzel Washington in, in the <laughs> film, no? Uh, X stands for they were torn out of their roots, of their native land. But his genius was to reject this topic, you know, we must return to our roots and so on. He wisely left this to Hollywood, you know, that series, Alexis Haley yes. Roots. Hollywood can do this. His ingenious insight was that, what was the tragedy for the blacks? X means you are deprived of your tradition and so on. It's also a unique chance of freedom. You know, this is the proper political dialectic. To see a chance of new freedom in what is, of course, a very traumatic catastrophe. Which is why, for example, and I met the lady, and she's a wonderful lady, Toni Morrison. Mm-hmm. You know how I know she's a wonderful lady? Because I was waiting with her and I asked my friend, uh, where is that stupid old fat bitch? And a voice said behind me, I'm here, professor. And we immediately embraced and become, no, but seriously now, beloved, it's the same. It's the biggest story that I know about the birth of black woman's subjectivity. It's a, these are mega works. This is what I claim how Europe can self-overcome itself. The function of Europe is to be vanishing mediator. 
So, we invented some great things centuries ago. Now we have to, how do you call it, the stupid metaphor, pass the torch to, uh-huh. to another one. So there's a sense in which you're saying European values or Western values, as you call them, almost have to be saved from the West as well. Not almost, but yes, absolutely. As I say in the book, in spite of all the cultural problems and so on, my God, the true threat to Europe today are not uh, poor Muslim refugees or whatever. It's the defenders of Europe. I mean, I'm appealing to your best old-fashioned liberal European, even racist instincts. Can you imagine Europe where Nigel Farage is ruling here? Well, I wouldn't be afraid of that. Let me tell you a joke. I met him once on BBC. And I can vouch for you, he is not a danger. He is a clown. He is not a true leader, no? But, but in France, Le Pen, in Germany, Pegida in power. If these defenders of Europe get into power, Europe is finished. But you know that they said Donald Trump was a clown. What? Was a clown. And he may still be a clown, but he's a much more no, dangerous no, 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 clown no, 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 now no, no. than here, he was before. Wait a minute. I'm here a psychoanalytically trained a philosopher who knows how to distinguish clowns and clowns, you know. <laughs> Nigel Farage is not that kind of a clown. But with Trump, ah, let me shock you now. Now come the shocks. You've met uh, him. Trump, no, 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 I'm not crazy. <laughs> and the reason I have a certain understanding for Trump is not because his wife is Slovene. That's why he's so popular in Slovenia. Ooh, we will have a first lady in White House. No, it's another thing. Trump is doing, of course, he's an extremely vulgar guy with a lot of uh, bullshit in what he's saying. You know, the best characterization of Trump was from one American commentator who said, imagine a high-class party, and then one of the people pulls his trousers down and simply kneels there and defecates in public, no? My reaction to this was that, I, that I, it's not only... I've never been to a party like that. Sorry? So I've never been to a party yeah, like because that. because you're not part of the American ruling elite. You know? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I'm saying that it's not just Trump. Do you know uh, Louis Buñuel's film, Phantom de Liberté, Phantom of Freedom? One of my favorite scenes where they turn around the natural order so that shitting becomes eating, eating, shitting. You know, uh, families visit another family and there is a big table with toilet seats. And they talk and shit, and then a baby asks, Mommy, where is that place you know to eat? And Mommy said, you don't talk about this in public. Go there discreetly. <laughs> this is now American politics, more or less. <laughs> and if we remain at this level, look, read Trump closely, and you will see that if you, which is difficult to do, I know, abstract his total racist, sexist stupidities, and look from here and there where he makes a concrete proposal. They're usually not so bad. He's much, he said he will not totally dismantle universal health care, which is a taboo for all others. He said, very importantly, you know the Jewish lobby is now against him because he said we must find the right balance there. In, he was for uh, raising minimal wage and so on. So I think that Trump is a paradox who he is really a centrist liberal maybe even in his economic policy closer to Democrats, and he desperately tries to mask this. So the function of all these dirty jokes, stupidities, is to cover up that he is really a pretty ordinary central politician. Now comes my point. 
in contrast to Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz, listen to his proposals. They are nightmare. If I were to be some surgeon general, of, I would inspect Ted Cruz like, is he human, is he an alien? <laughs> no. no, I really mean it. That's the tragedy of American politics. There is hope, but there is danger. What Chomsky called manufacturing consent. How? Both parties monopolize the field proposed. It's falling apart. There is a rebellion in both parties. And as usually, it's new hope, but it also can be... Don't, you know, uh, but back to what you asked me at the beginning. You know what's my problem? Not yet. What if Trump... <laughs> not Trump. What if... Uh, if Trump is by some miracle elected president, I don't fear. He is a conformist. But what if Sanders, by some absolute magic, which cannot happen, is elected president? What I fear? No, he's not a stupid leftist who will socialize. He will do some very modest things. But I think even this will be too much for the capital, and they will organize a crisis against him. This is, for me, where I disagreed also, in a very friendly way with Varoufakis. You know, when he explains, in his, he's almost, nobody can be as nervous as me, full of ticks, but he comes <laughs> close to me sometimes, explains how, do you know how horrible it was in Brussels, how they ignored me, humiliated me? And I told him, but what did you expect? That Brussels is some kind of Habermasian community of rational argumentation. I told him, I expected them to be even worse. If I were to be a typical Western European capital manager, uh, whatever, I would try to push Greece out and then organize a total fiasco there, hunger, and so on and so on. I even expected Europe to be more brutal. No? Uh, this is uh, moving to the point which, uh, before we came out, uh, uh, Slavoj said, was where we pretend to be democratic, which means uh, we're opening up to questions. There are people, uh, there should be people with mics all around. We're going to take three questions of a, at a time. Yeah. I'd ask you to make it brief so we can get as many questions in as possible and to try and avoid making statements. There should make your voice to, rise yeah. at the end. Imagine there's a question and mark. And to repeat an old joke, just to make you sure, I love dialogues, mm-hmm. but late Plato's dialogues. Do you know them? <laughs> One guy talks all the time. The other guy says every 10 minutes by Zeus, so it is Socrates. <laughs> so let's have this type of a dialogue <laughs> now. <laughs> okay, so let's pretend to be democratic. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Put your hands up. Yeah, ah. hello. Uh, I wonder how do you comment on uh, people having to pay tickets to come and listen to you? Okay, so that's the first question. Okay, um, no problem. There's uh, one up there. Is here. Hi there. I think you might um, comment a little bit uh, about the EU referendum in the UK. Okay, a comment about the EU referendum and one of you. Yeah, you, you were a supporter back then of Erdogan, the Turkish president. So I wonder what's your view now. Are you crazy? I'm well, prohibited. I'm afraid to enter Turkey. Today. But before we were having some supportive, some no, kind of support. No, no. Or maybe it's a mistake. But the question is, but I can, yeah. what do you think about uh, Merkel's uh, recent decision of pursuing the uh, German humorist, which is contradictory in terms of maybe about... Okay, so you yeah. go ahead. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, first, tickets and so on. Well, I can give you only a very naive answer. And I hope... All people here can vouch for the truth of it. 
I don't get even a penny out of it. I'm here for free. So if you think you are exploited, I'm also exploited. <laughs> Because, you know, I even take my own ticket, plane ticket, the hotel was paid by uh, Bergbeck and so on. So there is absolutely, and also, Tomorrow, when I speak at Libyan School for uh, Economics, no, uh-huh. I also get no, get no money for that. But on the other hand, you know, let's say they were to offer me a lot of money. I must be frank, I would gladly accept it. Why? Because first, you know, this is typical, I claim, middle-class guilt. Did you have any real contact with poor people? Their attitude is, can you get money? Grab it perfectly. It's only the middle class people who feel guilty. And, you know, it's obscene. But what I want to say is this. But you know how many, I don't have anything. I don't own an apartment where I live. My wife owns it. I don't have a car. You see how I'm dressed and so on. Just to give you an idea, when I had some money, I wanted to go with my son to Ritz or Savoy mm-hmm. for a breakfast. You know what they told me? I asked them, is the breakfast room open? They looked at me and told me it's open, but not for you, sir. <laughs> <laughs> so what I'm saying is that, you know, to how many places I go, political or where I really care, political debates, communist debates or philosophical, I finance them from those who do pay me. And I think it would be totally hypocritical to play this game of no, it's dirty money. No, be a Leninist, take money, but use it correctly. Because if I get well paid, I don't think that any greater number of Somali children will die because of that. It's just that probably some other idiot artist or whoever will get more money. We should take money and use it correctly. Don't do this moralism. Okay, on with what Brexit. Brexit, uh, I don't know enough about the situation here. The reason, but it's very abstract one. Again, if you know situation better here, I'm ready to change my mind. But there is now a new tendency among some of the European leftists which is something like European Union is just an arm of international monetary capital, financial capital, and on the other hand, we have this right-wing nationalist revolt against it, which looks efficient, right-wing anti-immigrants are popular, so why should we leave this to the right-wing? Why should we not try to, try to include into our field nationalist reference and turn into something that some of my friends even, they didn't use the word national socialism, but to save their shame skin, it was socialist nationalism, it sounds better, no? And then you get something toward which, even if it was meant seriously, I'm deeply skeptical. Namely, you know, for example, this Lapavitsas, I take him here, he's a great guy, but nonetheless, his idea of Grexit, Greeks steps out of Euro, prints its own money, and so on and so on. I think that in this way you don't really gain any independence from international capital. In the way, like Venezuela can do, why? Because 
could have done, now it cannot, because they have oil and so on and so on. For Greece, it would have been a catastrophe. In other sense, I don't buy this story of let's, the left should mobilize ordinary people with nationalist rhetorics, because it's the only one which works against global capital. I think this is a catastrophic decision. Here, with many friendly disagreements, I follow Varoufakis. The lesson of the Greek defeat is that one nation state cannot do it. The only chance for Europe, and it's quite possible that Europe will miss this chance, because now, after this gradual little bit decline of the left in Greece, in Spain, and so on, there are basically at this moment two strong Europes, anti-immigrant racist Europe and this anonymous Brussels Europe. They are both horror. If this remains the only choice, Europe is over. What about the Podemos, Syria, Jeremy Corbyn, uh, Portuguese I don't left know Europe? enough about Jeremy Corbyn, and this is not a, rhetor- a mm-hmm. nasty rhetorical question. Mm-hmm. No, but, no, I just no, no, that, no, that, no. What I will oh, say okay. now, I'm asking you, probably you know more. Is there anything in Corbyn which is more than return to good old welfare state Labour Party? And if it is, what exactly there is? I think there's a lot more to his base than that. I mean, what's interesting, I think, about Corbyn and Sanders is that unlike Syria, Podemos and so on, they don't actually represent a new politics. They are saying the same things that they've been saying for a long time, but their base is completely different. That The base that Corbyn would have had of someone like Corbyn in the 80s would have been a traditional trade union base and so on. Whereas now, it's a lot of young people, it's a lot of non-white people, um, it has a different energy behind him. So regardless of whether he is the same person, he doesn't have the same authority. Okay, I will rephrase my question. So he doesn't have the same mandate. All these young, nice guys around Corbyn, are you Mm. one of them? No, I'm not. I mean, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not around him. I would have voted for him okay. if I'd been in the Okay, country. my position is exactly the same. Probably, not probably, for sure, at mm. the elections, I would have voted for him. Mm. But I, I'm sorry to tell you with this a little bit of skepticism, like what can he actually achieve and so on and so on. I think that, unfortunately, the function of this type of left is still more, it's horrible to say, this pedagogic, in the sense that... In the long term, like the result of Sanders will also probably be pedagogic in the sense of educate people in the long term and so on and so on. And I think it was a wise decision that uh, Corbyn and the majority of Labour Party decided against Brexit. The third one, Erdogan. Listen, what you probably think is something of which I'm still proud. Some five, six years ago, I remember this. I wrote a text celebrating all Austrian-Hungarian monarchy and the old Turkey, Sultan Turkey, as a model for the future, with a lot of irony. But what I meant is that these were almost for today's relations a model of relatively functioning multiculturalism. Do you know one of the most beautiful stories that I know? There was in France a small Christian sect. They were thrown out from France by Catholics in 1840s. Then they were thrown out of Bavaria. And in 1860s, they were looking all around Europe, like we are Christians. 
could you give us just a little bit of a land? You know where they got the land? In Bosnia, which was at that point uh, part of Turkey, part of Ottoman Empire. So what I'm saying is this. When we associate Turkey with all the horrible crimes, uh, the oppression of Kurds, Armenia, and so on, never forget, and here I'm critical of Europe, my God, that this was not ancient Turkey. This was the young Turks who wanted to change Turkey into a modern nation-state. This was the only positive way that I referred to Turkey. Not Turkey as a big Turkey which is screwing the Kurds, but a Turkey which has no problem in admitting its uh, multi-ethnic character or whatever it worked. And up to a certain point, although much less, it was the same. There is now a kind of nostalgia which I think is not totally reactionary in Europe for the old Austro-Hungarian Empire. Because it was kind of a miracle of a multi-ethnic uh, community. I don't idealize it. But this is the only way in which I was positive towards Turkey. And the reason was a personal one. In ex-Yugoslavia, Serbs were obsessed by, you know, we fought the Turks and so on. So my whole entire education in elementary and high school were Turks are the bad guys. So it's a natural reaction to look, maybe they are not so bad. But then Erdogan, although he legitimizes himself as a renovation of Turkish empire, no, it's just a brutal nation state. My God, he follows the worst Kemalist politics against the Kurds. Kurds are the true miracle. They are not some primitive, pre-modern rebellion. You know that I read when I was in Turkey some statistics. Kurds are the most atheist ethnic group in Turkey. They are proud of it. I visited in Istanbul a Turkish restaurant where I remember a guy was there who made some prayer motion and they threw it out. Like, no, sorry, we are secular, you don't do this here, and so on and so on. Kurds are a strange nation. For me, this is the worst thing that one can say about Erdogan, but the bad news is that maybe he is also like Modi, one of the possible futures. It looks so what works today. Neoliberal capitalist economy combined with ethnic fundamentalism with authoritarian twists. That's why I proposed, and it was published in Turkish media, you know, officially now they are enemies, Putin and Erdogan. And my proposal was, aren't they really the two platonic copies, version of one same big politician? I coined the name Putogan, like Putin and Erdogan. <laughs> and say, Putogan is our future master, no? And it's, again, it's very, because I know the situation, I even have connections with them. That, um, how do you call it, PKK or whatever, the <laughs> Kurdish party. No, they now announced armed struggle, more or less. And it's a wonderful story. They're, leader, Ocalan, who is now in prison. You know what he's doing in prison? He's reading Foucault, feminist literature, and so on, and so on. I mean, Kurds are the miraculous element in Turkey now. And this is why Erdogan had to get so harsh. The key point of Turkish politics, my friends acclaimed to me, maybe I'm simplifying, is that three groups emerged now. Kurdish party, which now they have a legal wing, which you know, to prevent them to enter parliament, Turkey has, I think, the highest threshold of you have to gain 10%. They did enter Turks. Then you have social democrats, which are weak but exist. 
And then, very interesting, there is a split in Kemalism between more nationalist old general and the new more leftist Kemalists who are ready to do pact with Kurds. There was a possibility for these three to gain majority. That's why Erdogan was in a panic and he started bombing the Kurds and so on and so on. So we've got time, I think, for three more questions. I noticed your reactionary tendency that all the questions were from the right. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I noted this, you know. No, no your enemy. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so, the young man over there. Yeah. Um, quick question on uh, what's going on in America and some of the populist movements in Europe as well. Do you think that you could explain, I guess, briefly uh, the reason why you think so many people are voting for Bernie Sanders, Trump, Corbyn, and some of the, some of the other populist movements? Okay. Um, yep. Hi there. You talk about, you often mention a broken system. My question was if you had any comments on uh, the current fiat system money that's supporting a fraudulent debt system uh, around the world and what implications it has transnationally on how we organize ourselves both politically and economically. And one more. You said that you want us to work on very specific changes to democracy. Uh, what specific changes are your priorities and what are you doing specifically to make those changes happen? I will begin with the last question. To surprise you, I'm almost tempted to take the Fifth Amendment, you know. I prefer not to answer this question because it may incriminate me. Because now this may be shocking for you, but I'm not even talking about more democracy. I'm talking about a stronger, more efficient government which should be in some sense responsible and so on, because the big task today is to have a globally or at least transnationally efficient government. Look at the ongoing refugee crisis. It's catastrophe for Europe. A little bit more centralized Europe, with, I know it's horrible what I'm saying now, with stronger military, I'm for militarization. I know this is a shock. People say, are you crazy? You want soldiers. Well, frankly, from my experience, I trust soldiers much more than policemen, and I trust policemen still much more than ordinary people's militias. You know, one of the most depressive things happening now in post-communist East European countries is that right-wingers are organizing in Hungary, in Slovakia, in others, popular militias. They are cruising the, uh, around the forests and detecting uh, immigrants and, and so on and so on. So my vision of refugee, not long-term solution, long-term is change the system and so on, it's more radical, but people always ask me, you talk about anti-capitalism, screw it. We have a problem here, what to do? I claim central military organization. None of this humiliating chaos, hundreds of thousands traveling through Balkan, and then the effects are catastrophic, hatred, and so on. I would be for brutally, militarily, establishing, not occupy any country, I'm not crazy, military posts on Syrian coasts, or I don't know, Turkey, if Turkey agree, probably on Lesbos, northern Libya, and so on, large mega-operation, processing refugees there, then direct air bridges or at least ferries and around Europe and so on and so on in a large organized way. Anything else 
the catastrophe which is going on now will be getting stronger and stronger and the result will be the only one who truly profited till now were precisely the anti-immigrant populists, not even the refugees. What I'm, listen, I'm not such a bad guy as I may appear through my, I'm not saying I'm a good guy, but I'm not <laughs> such a bad guy. I want, this may sound cynical for you, considering what some people call me now, but uh, I want more refugees in Europe. But I want to have it done in such a way that it will not provoke the right-wing uh, backlash, which is why a much more problematic topic. I think it's catastrophic to keep silent, ashamed, when we have problems like yours a year and a half ago, Rotterdam, and so on. There is something so deeply racist in this. It appears like, no, we are guilty for everything. But I think this is... I had a South African friend, black, who made the most beautiful statement that I can imagine. When he was listening, this was years ago, to some white guy reporting Tutsi who to Rwandan conflict, and the official narrative was, this is all an after-effect of colonialism, no? And this guy exploded. He said, this is so racist. You white people are so patronizing that you don't even allow us to be really bad. If you are, we are bad, you know, it's the inverted version of, of white man's burden. Now, whenever there is something chaotic in third world, oh, it must be the effect of colonialism or whatever. And this is what I find so humiliating towards Muslims. Whenever there is something that says, we didn't integrate them enough, we are guilty, and so on, that we should openly talk about it, burst it, First, because there is a struggle going on, I know, I participated in it when I was in Ramallah, in the Muslim community itself. Our media don't report on it. Do you know that now in Palestina, there is a strong struggle going on for women's rights to appear in public, fundamentalists uh, and so on. But what I want to say is this, that... Uh, when people say, oh, but, you know, they come from a war, they, even if they rape, they are not responsible, they are victims. My God, you know what we are saying? We are reducing them to pure passive victims, although it's inverted, but it's still racism, as if we white people are the only one who can be bad, who can be active. I think that what Palestinians, or not Palestinians, the Arabs generally are doing, it is a type of agency. Of course, you cannot understand it without effects of European colonialism. But the conflict, Shia, Sunni, and so on, and all that. So they are active, and we should treat them as such. Not this patronizing, don't mention it. it Second point, more important. I am sick and tired about this topic of integration, not enough integration. Now I will provoke you. Maybe there is too much integration. Why should there be integration? What do I mean by this? Listen, the true question to ask is what kind of integration? I mean by this the following. Did you notice a wonderful detail or series of details about these who are now accused of terror acts in France and Belgium and so on? They don't come. They are not refugees. All of them are from families which were their parents fully integrated. And paradoxically, their acts are a revolt against their parents' integration. 
So I'm not saying they should not integrate or there is an eternal... I'm just saying that the problem is more complex. The solution is not simply, oh, let's educate them in our manners and so on. What I especially hate here is this idea of we need more openness, understanding, we should listen to them. Of course, when this happens, it's wonderful. I'm not crazy. But you know what's my position here? Again, it's a crazy one. Uh, you know that saying, I mention it also in the book, which is for me one of the... Ha- I, I'm for death penalty against people who say this. It's some deep multicultural thought which goes on. An enemy is just someone whose story we were not ready to listen to. Uh, uh, are they crazy? So it's good to know that Hitler was our enemy, you know, because we were not ready to listen. No, we have to accept that there are ideologies which are really bad. The problem with Hitler is not that we were not listening to their side of the story. Maybe we should even listen as, among others, although of course I'm not a conservative, Winston Churchill was listening already in the early 30s to their story. That's why he got it immediately, an old anti-communist as he was, that Hitler is much greater danger than Soviet Union and so on. So, my idea is this one. Why this pressure to understand when, to use my old joke, I don't even understand myself. How can I understand you? For me, True anti-racism is not we are together and we bore each other with all those folkloric stories that I cannot stand. No, I would like to live in a big, in America they call it condominium. When I was young, I liked the term, I thought you get free condoms, whatever. Okay, but you know, like, there is a black guy, you are my neighbor here. An African is there, and an, an, a Chinese is there, an Arab is there, a Jew is there, and we politely ignore each other, but in a very friendly way, and then wait a minute. From time to time we strike a friendship and it's wonderful, but without this superego pressure, I have to understand you and so on. I don't think that Africans understand themselves. Because I know that my own nation doesn't... Uh, no, there is something false, especially combined with another extremely important ideological moment. I also quote it in the book. The uh, silent presupposition of some of these guys, who are for total openness and so on, is that there is something ennobling in poverty. When you suffer a lot, it makes you understand... No. I think did these people ever meet really poor, desperate people? And this is not a criticism of them. This is a very sad statement. They are totally bitter, usually. You know, po- the horror of poverty is that, of course, with exceptions, it doesn't ennoble you. The effect is horrible. Can I just conclude with that quote that I have in the book? It's wonderful. Ruth Klüger, an old Jewish lady, survived Auschwitz as a child. And in her memoirs, he reports on a wonderful experience. Okay, it's a sad experience, but I literally cried when I read it. He said that, she said that in a debate in Austria, he met some old, another old Jew who also had the number statut from Auschwitz and who exploded against stupid Arabs. They should all be killed, thrown out of the West Bank. And then she also asked herself, my God, 
But he saw all the suffering of Auschwitz. How can he do this? And then the lady, Ruth Kluger, says something wonderful. She said, but that's the horror of Auschwitz. It was not a factory of goodness. Those who survived were mostly monsters. That's the true horror of it. So don't patronize the refugees as if you know. This is not a Frank Capra movie who, you know, the poorer you are, the more noble you are. It's a horrible world, and if you want to be Christian, a truly Christian attitude is to love them in their evil, in their meanness, because that's their despair. You know, I hate this idea, if we just open ourselves up to them, they will be infinitely grateful. No, we ruin them, why should they be grateful? Of course there are thieves among them and so on. Help them accepting that. This is the true anti-racism. Not this communication. This communication, we are all good. This is what rich people like. You know, let's say I'm poor, you are rich. Wouldn't you like to communicate with me and then you would be able triumphantly to say, you see, even if I'm rich and he is poor, Nonetheless, we share the same dreams, we are the same. No, if you are rich and I'm poor, we are not the same, my God. No. <laughs> Sorry, there, Amen, were, well, there was another... I did 30... No, we're, we're not going to have time for those. It's, uh, um, on that note, all that's left for me to do is uh, thank the uh, wild man of theory. one reproach. I was really glad to meet you because you I'm not saying this in patronizing way. The oh only dear. people with whom I really can share dirty jokes are mostly black people, you know. <laughs> like, okay. I cannot, I dare not even tell to you how I'm talking to Cornel West and my American <laughs> friend, you know. And on that note... On that note. <laughs> Goodbye. Thank you. Okay, thank you. <laughs>